The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. It was originally inspired by the meaning and work research I've been doing over the last 15 years and now complements the work that I do at Insignium, a global management consulting firm. I'll get to the program in just a moment, but a big shout out to my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. They are the leading locally focused job board in the nation and are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard while giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. Thank you, Jobbing.com. Great partnership. For this week's conversation, with me is Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, who is a co-director of Integrated Success Strategies and the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. We'll be talking about stress and why it's so prevalent in today's times and what we can do to better manage it at home and at work using some of the concepts discussed in the book. He joins us today from Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Sierra McCauley, it's wonderful to have you with me. Welcome to Working on Purpose. Thank you very much, Elise. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I know I can certainly use a few tips in terms of handling stress better, so I'm going to wring as much as I can out of you in the hour we have together. hope you don't mind. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Okay. Well, to get us started here, since I know a little something about you, but my guests don't, will you just sort of help us understand how it is that you chose a career in psychology, why the field, and just give us kind of a sketch, if you will, of, of your background? Well, I think that uh, you know I, I was born into a family of psychologists, although they weren't uh, they didn't they didn't get academic degrees. But my mom and my mom and my dad were always taking in immigrants from different countries, and uh, they were always listening and trying to help people, especially people who were struggling with poverty and and new to the nation. So uh, I grew up watching my dad or my mother listening to people all the time, and um, and listening to several different languages in our kitchen as well. Uh, so. I, I think it was a natural thing for me, a, a natural interest to be interested in other people and to find out, you know, what what they're struggling with and how to tease out their potential. Particularly, both parents were very good at that. And I, you know, in the book, I have stories about both parents who, who uh, actually did that in, in ways that were pretty profound because people still talk about them today and the effect that their interactions had with them. And I think I learned how to listen empathically, particularly for my mother. Um, but also my father was able to give people a sense of confidence and was very good at teasing out potential. So I had some teachers early in life and throughout my adolescence that, so some of, some of my, uh, background 
in terms of my interest in this field doesn't come from a classroom, but comes from my own family. I have to tell you, I'm envious. Your family sounds fascinating. I would have loved to have grown up in that household. It was pretty interesting, at least. We always had people with us. <laughs> and people staying over and I used to say to my dad when I got up in the morning do we always have to have somebody sleeping here you know we would complain my brother and I because uh, we, we never if my father and my mother knew you're an immigrant it didn't matter where they were from um, they were going to help and they had a small furniture business so they'd always be giving away furniture and you know pay me later that kind of thing um, which is why we never became wealthy I think but they certainly left this earth with many many friends and many people that they touched in, in deeper ways. Mm, it's remarkable. I'm so glad you shared that with us. It's already I feel very, very connected to you, and I'm, I'm guessing my listeners do as well. So thank you for sharing that. Fantastic well, thank start. You. Thank you. One of the things that I think is a little bit unique about you is that you have a, a, a doctorate in education and philosophy. So you have a Ph.D. and an EDD. Mm-hmm. Why both degrees? Well, my first degree was in clinical psychology, but I always had an interest in nutrition and alternative medicine, exercise physiology. So the second was in health and human services with a specialty in nutrition and alternative medicine. And I actually became a director of an alternative medicine center, the the first one to ever be held inside a hospital in Massachusetts. So my interest is has been holistic, comprehensive. You know, when I when I work with people, I don't only work with their mental health, but I work with their physical health. Obviously, we know it's all connected, as I know you know. Mm-hmm. But I focus, as as you know, in this book, I have a chapter on self care, nutrition, the latest in exercise physiology and exercise routine. So I'm somebody who works out every day, um, and I. I'm pretty careful about my diet, so I try to help people in that regard. When I meet with people, I ask them about their cholesterol levels, their HDL, their blood pressure, and so forth, so I, I, how much they exercise, how much sleep they get. So I look at the overall person and their lifestyle, and, of course, that has a great to, deal to do with managing stress. I was intrigued with that section. Um, I I do work out six days a week as well. I, well, I, I don't know if you mean if that's how often you do, but I work out six days a week. And I did notice that 90-minute um, bit that you put in there. Over 90 minutes, you started to get into d- diminishing returns or even yes. Um, yeah. s- stress, I guess, is part of that. That was that was fascinating. I generally don't, although when I'm on a long run, I might, I might run into that figure. But that really caught my interest. So I, there's a lot of information in your book that, I, and I, I quite like the way you've organized it too. It's easy to read. I like how you've got the the notes and the margins that kind of capture your attention. It's just it's very nicely done. Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm envious that you can still run. My knees don't do that quite quite well anymore. So I do spinning it, classes on a daily basis. I appreciate that. I can still run. I'm going to work it for as long as I can. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Thank, thank it makes you. a great difference, doesn't it? It really does. You know, for that is my grounding piece. Absolutely. So, and then of course the eating and all that good stuff too. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, getting into the meat of the book here, I really want to. I really want to give our listeners as much as we can. There's just so much we could talk about here, and I think maybe the, the place to start, I guess, is just asking you to talk about empathic CBT. What is it? Well, empathic CBT is the combination of the power of empathy, brain science, and cognitive behavioral therapy that I I created, combined these three aspects because I thought it would be the most comprehensive self-help tool to lessen stress and increase balance in people's lives. So empathy calms the emotional brain so we can perceive accurately and thoughtfully. 
and being able to perceive accurately is crucial to reducing stress, as old bias thinking based on early conditioning distorts reality and causes unnecessary tension. And then knowledge regarding neurochemistry allows us to produce our own natural chemicals that create calm, focused energy so we can do and be the best we can. And I accent uh, perception here, particularly Elise, because empathic CBT is about learning that the way we perceive is the prime reason we have stress. Cognitive behavioral therapy is about the way we distort what we see. You know, when we learn early in life to generalize or use black and white thinking or catastrophize or use mind reading or magnifying, all these ways that we distort what we see that then causes stress. So when we learn to perceive accurately, and that's where empathy comes in, because empathy slows down our brain so that we use the thinking part of the brain to ascertain the facts in situations. Not only the facts in situations, but the facts about other people. And when we we, learn, we all, you know, no one in, in life grows up in a completely objective environment. We all grow up with biases about ourselves and other people. And I think this whole workbook is, is helping people. My goal is to help people to unlearn some of the biased ways we came to perceive ourselves and others. And that's what the combination of empathy and cognitive behavioral therapy can do because it does lead to very positive brain changes. That was incredibly crisp and very helpful. And what that reminds me of when I hear you say that in the world of work that we do uh, around management consulting, when we're working with executives, et cetera, we help them decouple um, their some of their thinking around, really reveal what some of those perceptions and maybe old ways of thinking like you're thinking of and yeah. the stories they're telling themselves about facts. Right, yeah. which uh, that's kind of how I'm relating the work that we do to what you're just saying there. That 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 is, I completely understand. Then you add the empathic piece to it. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that using empathy could reduce stress, but it makes complete sense in the way you described it. Well, you know, uh, what the, one of the most amazing findings to me, Elise, is that when we give and receive empathy, we produce the near miracle neurotransmitter oxytocin, which is what you produce when you were pregnant. And what does oxytocin do? It reduces anxiety and reduces the stress hormone cortisol in our bodies. It helps us live longer. It aids in recovery from illness and injury. It promotes a sense of calm and well-being. It increases generosity and empathy, protects against heart disease. It, it reduces inflammation. Most importantly, it reduces craving for addictive substances. It creates bonding and an increase in trust in others. So it decreases fear and it creates a feeling of security. So it makes it's very important when we're giving and receiving empathy, we cause that brain change because in business, what I try to teach, and as you know, I work with a lot of people in the corporate world, when you give and receive empathy with your clients, your customers, they feel understood. They believe that you know what they're looking for. They know what you want. And when you create that feeling of trust, it reduces the, the anxiety and tension that people have when they're negotiating. So the giving and receiving of empathy is as important in the corporate world, in the business world, as it is in our personal lives. Because when we produce tension, you know, if I'm trying to negotiate with you or I'm trying to sell you a product or we're trying to work together on a product or bring it to market and we're producing stress in each other, what happens then? We produce the stress hormone cortisol. And when we produce cortisol, what does that do? It produces negative thinking. It causes weight gain, inflammation, hair loss. It breaks down muscle tissue. It causes flabbiness, depression, anxiety, and it actually kills neurons in the memory center of the brain. 
and it also throws off blood sugar levels, which increases the size of fat cells and increases the desire for sugary substances. So here we have two different neurochemicals that we're producing. While cortisol makes us fearful when we have stress, oxytocin makes us feel comfortable, secure, and a position to give and receive empathy and to negotiate more effectively. You know, Stephen Covey was asked years ago, what's the most effective tool in business? He said, I, get, I can tell you in one word. He used the word empathy. Why, why there he was asked by a journalist? He said, because empathy makes people feel understood and it allows you to understand your customers and they to understand you and your products. So you work better together. You're, you compromise easier. You, 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 you produce a functional relationship and connection that is going to be mutually uh, advantageous for both parties. That was incredibly useful and, and, and effective. And if that doesn't make people right now, today, right this very moment, want to just stop and take a second to try to be more empathetic, I don't know what will. Because, boy, the negative list is incredibly long. So is the positive list. But really, that's... I've never had anybody describe so succinctly what you just did there. That was gorgeous. Oh, thank you very much. You're, you're very kind. <laughs> you know, what it makes me think is that if, if we can, just, just any chance we get, just stop and think for a moment, what, what, where's the other person coming from? I would think that if there was a way for us just to simply always try to interject that whenever we're talking with anybody at home or at work, wouldn't that make a huge difference? Uh, it would make a tremendous different, uh, difference, Elise, and the key to doing this is slowing down. You know, we mm-hmm. talk fast, we move fast, and, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is I'm absolutely convinced that we work too much, we sleep too little, we love with half a heart, and then we wonder why we're unhappy and unhealthy, because this fast-paced culture and this culture that places so much emphasis on appearance and achievement really puts us in a state of stress, and, and you know, I think so many people don't even realize that they're stressed. You know, these aren't people that are mentally ill, but they're people who just have so much trouble balancing their lives, their home life and their work life, because they're living with a degree of cortisol, the stress hormone cortisol all the time and all the negative effects it causes. Mm. Well, I think I certainly agree with what you just said there. We work too much. We, we care about our appearance too much. We don't, we don't sleep enough. We, we don't love enough. But what is it? Why is our stress rate so high? What's and how long has it been on the rise, do you think? Well, it, it's been on the rise for the last decade, but in fact, it, it has increased in recent years. You know, just last year, 75% of American workers so, said that they suffered from stress, either physically or emotionally, every day. And 50% of American workers said that they wake up every night due to stress. 75% of visits to primary care physicians last year was due to stress, caused by stress. And why? What's happening in our climate? Well, our empathy rates are down. Prejudice is up. Prejudice has increased. Uh, our trust in each other has decreased. The amount of friends that Americans say they have compared to 10, 15 years ago have decreased. Our political climate, we saw this during the primaries with the emphasis on aggression, insults, you know, lack of integrity is symbolic of the de-emphasis, I think, in our culture of the importance of character and empathy. And it's currently dominated the corporate world to some extent, our elected officials. So we see it all the time that 
achievement and status and appearance is, is looked upon as more important than character, integrity, and relationships. And we have to get back to the, to the point where we see that leaders, leaders, business leaders who are empathic and compassionate actually have companies and corporations that thrive. It isn't a negative, it's a positive. Once you realize that you're working for someone who's deceitful or neglectful or doesn't even say hello to the people while he walks through the halls, you know, because it, it, he, he or she believes they're too important or too busy. You know, it takes seconds to say hello. It takes seconds to just look at someone and know who cleans the floors on, on where, where your office is or, you know, to speak to the people in your cafeteria. You, 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 we, we don't realize that just a simple moment of kindness really awakens the whole environment. And then you have an environment where people feel happy. And when people feel happy, we're changing our brain chemistry. And it's up to leaders, project managers, directors, chairmen of committees. When you are able to do that, when you're able to change the brain chemistry of the people that work for you or are working with you, you create a climate where people trust each other and are much freer to say what they think and are far more creative, which is crucial to success in business. Mm, I'm completely convinced. I know for me, as just an individual, I love, and I, I I try to do this at least once a day, just simply say something kind to somebody, and just in a way that's it's authentic, it's real, and it's amazing how easy it is to make someone's day with that. I'm amazed by that. Why don't we do it more often? Well, you know, our nervous systems speak to each other. We, it's like we have remote controls in our hands, and and when we're not being authentic, people sense it. And when you're talking to people and they know you really don't care about them, they only care what you do for them, they will undermine you. Even if my bonus is dependent on you and you're my boss or director, people will still undermine you. I mean, when I, I've consulted corporations for many years and you see it over and over again. When a human being doesn't feel respected or that there's any civility between, between people and, and their relationships, they will undermine you. And authenticity, I mean, when we substitute our, our natural personality for one that's trying to please to gain acceptance and love, it's a failing proposition because pretense is a burden that's depleting. And it makes it difficult to maintain positive relationships or even intimacy in our personal lives. Because closeness to others is, is based on being able to be open, genuine, and vulnerable. And authenticity always attracts people. People mm-hmm. love authentic leaders that tell them the truth. They don't come out with forecasts every quarter and lie or, or project a certain revenue that they know is not going to be there to entice investors. When you're working for companies like that, it destroys the spirit of the people in it. And when that spirit is, is being destroyed, the companies function with less creativity and less effectiveness. Mm. That is so powerful, Dr. Sierra McCauley. And just at the top, perfect time for a break for our first one. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, who is co-director of Integrated Success Strategies and the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. He joined us today from Boston, Massachusetts. We've been talking about how stress shows up in our lives and really how we can use empathy to combat it. Stay, stay with us. We'll be more after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, who is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He is the co-director of Integrated Success Strategies and the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience, and also along with several previously published books. Very, very prolific, I might say. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So before the break, we talked a good bit about really how um, stress shows up in our lives and really how we can use empathy to combat it. But one thing we really haven't done really, per se, is really defining what you mean by empathy. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you really mean by empathy? Well, Elise, empathy is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. It's essentially everyday mind reading. You know, it's part mm. of our genetic endowment. It's not an emotion or a feeling, but a capacity that's innately present. You know, we're born with this capacity, but if it's not developed, it'll atrophy like an unused muscle. And we know that we can, we know that we can learn over time how to be more empathic. One of the, one of the difficulties that people often experience is they confuse it, confuse it with sympathy. You know, sympathy rushes into console, but empathy is fact-oriented. It's more objective. It stays back. It teaches, it's a capacity that teaches us to slow down and learn the facts of a situation. If I could just give you a brief example, I have a client who moved here recently from California, from Santa Barbara, and her dad had died a year ago, and she was devastated by the loss of her father because she was very close to him. And she moved into this new neighborhood outside of Boston, and she heard about a woman who she had met on one occasion that this woman's father died recently also. He died a few days ago. So she put together a basket of flowers and some food, and she walked down uh, just a little ways to this woman's home, and she rang the doorbell. And when the woman answered, she said, Oh, my God, I, I know you must be devastated. My father died last year, and I was devastated. I just wanted to do anything I could for you. And the woman stopped, and she looked at her, and she said, I really appreciate generosity. appreciate your generosity, but my dad left our family when I was two years old, and I, I never met my father. I never knew my father. I wouldn't even recognize him if I saw him on the street. So I appreciate your concern, but, you know, unlike you, I'm not devastated. You see, 
that was is what sympathy is. It, she rushed in to console based on her identification with the other woman, assuming that what my experience is is, is your experience. That's what sympathy is. Empathy would have taken its time to say, you know, what what is your experience with your dad? What what was it like? You know, we try to we try to gain the facts, and so that we don't rush in and assume, because sympathy, as opposed to empathy, occurs just we're we're identifying with another person's experience, even if we don't know if our experiences are similar, and we want we need to slow down enough so that we take in the information, and that's what involves empathic listening. You know, empathic listening is a, is a process where we slow down and really see beyond the the outside of a person, beyond their appearance, into the, their heart and soul to really find out who they are, what they're made up of. And it takes time to do that, just like it takes time to understand other people when you're negotiating with them. And it takes time to know people who we decide to be friends with or who to marry or get invested in, in a company with. When you're using empathy, it's, it's the greatest assessment tool because it allows us to learn factually who that other person is. And it also teaches us who to get close to and who to remain distant from. So it's very protective in, in many ways, in, in professional life and in personal life. That was hopelessly interesting and very useful, and I could identify that with that quite a bit. And I, I think that your description of, of empathy versus sympathy was, was was very crisp. And I think for our listeners who maybe probably several of us confuse those two, I can say that for me, what I find very, very fascinating is that people will often use phrases like, well, I did such and such for, for this person because that's what I would want. Yeah, okay. yeah, right. <laughs> That's not very useful. Um, no, and, and it's, you're making an assumption that what, what I like or what I want is what you want, mm-hmm. rather than finding out the unique longings of another person. And, you know, that's what great leaders do. Great leaders te- tease out the potential of the people who work for them. They know how to mentor, and they know how to place people in certain positions because they, they, they learn enough about them, they listen to them well enough that they understand who they are and what they could do. So they bring people along in the right places. People, leaders who don't listen, who just read a resume and assume that that's where you should be or that's where this other person should be, they don't really know the people. They're basing, they're basing their decisions on what they read or what they're told rather than getting to know the individuals involved. Right. And is there is is there anything more lovely and powerful than when, as you said before, than just feeling really understood by someone else, seen and understood by someone else? You know, you know, the Stanford, uh, uh, the business school there, the MBA program, they were trying to figure out at one point, they did a long term study of, of several corporations throughout the country. And they're trying to figure out why why do their MBA graduates not succeed as much as they would expect being so well educated? And, and they interviewed people who were working for their graduates throughout the country. And what did they find out? They found out that the most important thing to the people who were working for them was they wanted to feel heard and they wanted to feel understood. And that's what empathy is. And a number of the managers, directors, who weren't not succeeding from their programs did not make people feel understood or make them feel heard. And people often say to me, sometimes people say to me, well, you know, we don't have time for that in the corporate world. We, I can't stop and make everybody feel understood. And what I try to teach is that it isn't that you have to have an hour-long conversation with somebody, but if you're walking down the hall and you're on your way to a meeting that's important and you're a little bit late and someone interrupts you, 
you can respond to them in a civil way. You can say, you know, Elise, I can't talk to you now, but can you leave a message on my phone and I'll get back to you later? I'm, I'm on my way to a meeting. But, or you could react in a very rude way and say, I'm on my way to a meeting, Elise, and just keep walking. Okay, what is that going to do to you? It, it kind of goes right through your heart and makes you feel like this person has no respect for you, nor do they want to interact with you. And we do have time to be empathic. It doesn't take loads of time to convey to someone that you're interested, but maybe you can't supply what they want at the moment. Right. And so that takes that presence and slowing down, as you were talking about before. Yes. Yes. Mm. Well, one of the things that you mentioned early on when you first began speaking that I'm, I'm quite curious of, I really I like to be able to give our listeners something that they can use just as soon as they, they stop listening to the show. And one of the things you talked about in the beginning was negative stories. Yes. So how do we get rid of negative stories that we created about ourselves? Well, you know, early in life, at least we create a novel, I think, a fictitious story about ourselves that we, we write based on what we think is being reflected back to us from those around us as if we're looking at ourselves in a mirror. But if the mirrors you're looking into are cracked or inaccurate, you get a distorted view of yourself as you would if you were looking in a circus mirror. So as a result, you create an inaccurate story about yourself, and that sort of story sets the stage for an irrational belief system. And we can't change that story alone. We're all too subjective. I think, first of all, we have to accept that. We can't change it alone. We need a group of people in our lives that will give us honest feedback so that we can obtain an accurate view of ourselves, who we are today, a more objective account than the one we came to believe earlier in life. And as I said earlier, no one grows up in a completely objective world. We all grow up getting certain feedback about ourselves that is not necessarily accurate. So we grow up with biases, and we have to unlearn them. But again, we need feedback from other people, other people that are reasonable, and, and people that are stable and people who we know and trust tend to perceive pretty accurately. And then when you get a consensus from a group of people like that, you have a much better idea of who you are. One of the problems is, though, that some people hang on to their old story for dear life, like they won't let it go. They say, nobody knows me as well as I know me. Well, you have to be a little humble and let your ego go and realize that none of us are objective enough to know exactly who we are. We need feedback from other people. And I always say that good friends tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. So if you have friends that you have this understanding with, that we both complement each other no matter what we're doing or what we're saying, you don't really have friends, you have acquaintances. And good colleagues do the same thing. They give reasonable, tactful feedback. When you're a leader and you know how to give reasonable, tactful feedback, even if it's not complimentary, people will take it and learn from it. If you talk down to them, if you talk to them with impatience, if you embarrass them in a staff meeting, they're not going to listen to you. But, so ultimately, we need to rewrite that novel that we create early in life and make it a nonfiction book, not a novel. It has to be a nonfiction book based on who we are today. In my career... I was just saying, you know, I have three ongoing groups, communication and leadership groups that have been ongoing for over 25 years. And we were just talking about this morning that, you know, some people in the groups, even though they'll get feedback from 10 people about how they view them after getting to know them pretty well, they'll still hold on to their story. Like, like your story is more accurate than anyone else's. We have to be humble and admit to ourselves that we all grew up with some biases 
and we have to unlearn them. And the only way we unlearn them is not through sitting in a chair thinking on our own, but receiving and giving feedback with other people. And that's where the empathy comes in. Because when we're giving and receiving empathy, we create that bond and that trust, and we're able to open up and be honest with each other. And then you can tell someone that's working in a particular uh, uh, division that they really don't belong there, but they belong somewhere else. Or you start to give them feedback that is based on you knowing them, and they know they have to improve in a certain area. Mm. When I hear you talk about this whole uh, subject area, I'm reminded of, of something that I heard some time ago. I'd love to hear, hear you your take on this is people can read your intention when you give them some feedback, a tactical or constructive, whatever it might be. If you can deliver that with the intention that you care about them and you're doing this to yes. support them, that they, they can read, they'll hear your intention first. If it's to criticize them and make them feel bad, they'll get that. If it's to help them grow, they'll get that. Yes. Yes, exactly. And if, and getting back to the issue of authenticity, if you're doing it in, in an inauthentic way, they sense that too. And then mm-hmm. they know that you, you don't really care about them. Like, for instance, most of the time when people are asking questions, they're really making a statement. And a lot of leaders do that. They'll say, Elise, did you really think what you presented in staff meeting was worthwhile? <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not really asking you a question there, am I? No. I'm really saying, Elise, no. what I think you said in that staff meeting was terrible. Now, right, I, could, right. I could be a little more courageous and say, Elise, you know, I know you worked very hard on that presentation, but given that company that we're presenting to, we really need to think more about those last three points that you made. And I, and I know you I know you worked very hard on it, but let's go over it again because I could see that vice president who was listening to you on the other side. He was shaking his head, and I and I and I think you missed that. So you know we have to get back to them, but let's let's do some strategizing about that last section. Mm, okay, that would now, be it, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, you're going to take that in very differently than what I say. Do you think what you did in that meeting, the way you presented things, was convincing? You know, yeah. It, it's, just, it's just denigrating. And yeah, that I don't, last I, version. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. And, and now I don't want to present in your presence. <laughs> right. Oh, I've, I've worked with people like that before, and I didn't exactly. But the last version you gave sounded to me like coaching. That's what it sounded yeah. like to me. Yes. Like constructive, loving coaching. That's what I got yes. from that. Yes, it's coaching, it's it's compassionate coaching, and it's teasing out potential. Look, it mm-hmm. was an hour-long presentation. For 40 minutes, it was excellent. But those last 20 minutes, when you started to talk about how we would engage their company and how they would interact with us and how we would merge on these products, you know, some of your facts, I think you were generalizing too much. And, yeah, now we try to... I'm trying to hone in on your skills and maybe help you be a little bit more detailed in certain areas. Mm-hmm. And help you get to the next level, whatever that is for you. Yeah. Or whatever you yeah. want that to be for you. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to be sure and get, while we, because I, I know we're, we'll have another segment here shortly, but I, I want it, you mentioned the idea of prejudice in causing stress. I'm quite mm-hmm. fascinated with that. What do you mean by that? Well, this is very important to me because, you know, I, a lot of my work is, is trying to correct prejudices, and I'm very, very very concerned about it because I know the prejudice rates in our country have accentuated recently. So what do, I, what do I mean in terms of saying prejudice is a cause of stress? Well, when we encounter someone we have an inherent prejudice against, prejudice against whether it's con- conscious or unconscious, we begin to experience a degree of stress. And when we're stressed, we release the stress hormone cortisol, which limits our capacity for empathy. And it also causes negative, repetitive negative thinking. 
And, you know, in the chapter on prejudice that I wrote, I have 12 comments by college-educated people that just display how, much, how, many, how many mythical ideas we can grow up with and mm-hmm. how we don't realize how much stress it causes. For instance, if I look at you and you look like somebody from my past who bullied me or you're someone of a, of a different color or a different culture and I heard that, you know, Irish people are drunks or Italians are all in the mafia or, or black people are this or, you know, on and on and on. If I have those inherent prejudices, I'm not going to really hear what you're saying because I feel uncomfortable. I'm going to have a level of stress inside me. And cortisol limits empathy. It limits the degree to which we can understand and and see another person. I'll give you an example from that chapter on prejudice. I have a client who's a CFO, very bright man, and, and, and a very decent man. But one day we were talking in the summer and my windows were open and there was a dog barking outside the window from my neighbor's house. I have a home office. And we were talking about athletics and he said, oh, you know, for some reason his mind drifted to this. He said, you know, dogs don't like black people. I said, really? They don't like black people? He says, yeah, it's something about the smell. I said, "Um, what do you mean? How did you learn that? And he said, well, you know, my mother used to say that there was a black people on a corner of our street. And she she always used to say, don't ever talk to dogs down there. The dogs don't like black people. And then I kind of slowed him down and I said, did you ever take the dogs down there? He goes, no. And I said, have you ever been in the presence of a black person with dogs? He said, no. And he said, now you're you're making me feel silly. I said, I'm not trying to make you feel silly. But what I'm trying to accent is we all learn these things that have no factual basis whatsoever. I said, I have an uncle who's black and we call him the dog whisperer. He has two dogs who love him, and he trained our two dogs, and, and dogs just, he, they just, he has this innate feeling with dogs, and I said, honestly, I haven't noticed anything about a smell. And, you know, this man felt embarrassed, but here it was, this 56-year-old CFO, MBA, who learned this mythical thing from his mother when he was probably six or eight years old. He's lived his whole life thinking it was true, because it was never examined. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. on and on and on with those kind of things. Like one of the one of the fellas said, "Well, I hope I hope Clinton doesn't lead because you know a woman could never never lead our economic uh, ec- lead in economics." And I said, "Well, you know the whole thing. Women don't understand economics." And and then another woman said to me, "Well, you know men don't have the empathy gene." And on and on and on. All these things that we learn early on that aren't based in fact, we have to unlearn. But they, they are prejudices. And, and some of the worst prejudices are prejudices toward ourselves. You know, how many people call themselves names when they make a mistake in a meeting or they don't pronounce something quite right. They think that making a mistake means they are a mistake. One of my clients in my group this morning said, you know, I, I, Dr. C, I finally think I'm getting it. I said, what do you mean? He said, I was in a meeting the other day and I was doing a presentation in front of my boss and I made a mistake. I misquoted some figures. And I burst out laughing. And, and other people, and I saw other people smiling too. And I looked at my colleague and I said, Bobby, I got that figure mixed up. What was it? He goes, you gave the, you gave the number, he gave 1470, it was, the, it was the number of his street address rather than the figure. That the, he said, I don't know. I, I don't know why I said that, folks. And he corrected it. And, he, and I said, I bet other pe- people felt comfortable when you did that. And he said, you know what? They did. He said, and I realized, so I made a mistake. And I, I always used to think when I made a mistake that people were going to be so judgmental. And you know who was the most judgmental person of all? I said, who? He said, me. 
I mm. was being so judgmental. And when I just acknowledged that I made a mistake, I asked my colleague for the correct figure. We went on with the presentation. Everything was fine. Mm. He said, I can't right. believe I've spent my life thinking so severely about myself. Like, mm-hmm. I have to be perfect. Yeah, and, and he demonstrated that to others that it was okay for them to make a mistake as well, which is also delightful. Yes. All right, it's time for a break again already, if you can believe it. It goes so fast. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, who is co-director of Integrated Success Strategies and the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. He joins us today from Boston, Massachusetts. Stay with us. We'll have more after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. Arthur Sear McCauley, a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He is the co-director of Integrated Success Strategies and the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience, along with several previously published books. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So for this final little bit of segment here, I want to I want to take us into a few areas that I think our listeners will also continue to find compelling. And the first one is, you talk about performance addiction in your book. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. is it? Well, performance addiction, uh, Elise, is a term that I coined after working with high achievers, particularly in the corporate world. And mm-hmm. performance addiction, I define it as the belief that perfecting appearance and achieving status will secure love and respect. It's an irrational belief system that's learned from early family experiences, and it's reinforced by our material appearance-driven society. You know, my first recognition of performance addicts came about largely as a result of my work with a group of individuals who embodied so many of the qualities that are highly regarded in professional and public life. Their resumes were very impressive, but I noticed that despite their capabilities, they seemed to have little regard for their personal achievements and their own physical appearance. They all seem to be what I call scoreboard watchers. 
every day they t- they were taking they take inventory of how well or how terribly they're performing or how attractive or dreadful they look in the mirror, and. In their personal lives, they tend to form love, uh, relationships around what I call image love. You know, image love means that you fall in love not with the real person, but you fall in love with the image of a person, how, they're, how they look, how they appear to you, but you don't use real empathy to get to know them. And performance addicts tend to fall in love with images because they're looking to em- enhance their self-worth so much. So, and what happens is that as a result of that, they have tremendous difficulty loving. They base their own lovability on their daily performance, and unfortunately, they expect the same of their partner and also of their children. They're constantly comparing and contrasting themselves and their partners to others. They find it easy to fall in love, you know, that blinding and binding effect of early sex and early phases of a relationship that creates an illusion, an image of love, but it doesn't last. Because once they get to know another person, that person isn't lifting up their, their self-esteem to such a degree that they start to lose interest. I had, a, I had a, an, a, an example of this not long ago when I did a consultation with a couple, again, from California. Seems like a lot of people on the West Coast are moving this way recently. And this woman, this woman was, a, uh, she was an intern and then hired by this company. Uh, and the, the, C, the CFO of the company uh, eventually became her husband. There's about a 14-year difference in their ages. He's older. And she was very impressed with him, and they, they, he lost his job. The company merged with another company, and he was not kept. So he was out of work for four or five months. He, they moved to Massachusetts because he was going to take a job as a CFO of a small startup. That company also failed. So they came into my office because she wanted to separate and he wanted to maintain the marriage. And when they came in, I said, so you want to separate? What, what happened? You know, what? And she said to me, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but, you know, I was an intern and I used to watch my husband do presentations and he'd come in with a three-piece suit and he always looked so good and people always looked up to him. And when he would do presentations, he was so impressive. Now I come home and he's in sweatprints on the Internet looking for jobs. And I just don't feel the same about him. And right at that moment when she said that, I, said, I, I, I immediately thought of performance addiction and image love. See, she fell in love with an image, and once the image phased, there was, there was nothing more to hold her to this man. And this is a woman who's extremely focused on her appearance. She's also now in the business world. But she doesn't relate on a very deep level. She, she didn't get the kind of love she wanted early in life, and she sees achievement and appearance as the way to secure it now, which is what performance addiction is. Because a lot of people in the corporate world, in the business world, who are so intense, so driven, they don't have what I call a dimmer switch. They don't know when to turn the dial down. So when they come home, the dial is still up. The light is always shining bright. And they're never much very relaxed. They, they don't have a sense of calm within themselves because they think those old childhood hurts that they experienced that they never worked out, they're trying to work it out through achieving more, improving their resume, making more money and looking better. And, of course, it's, it's a failing proposition. And that is what I call performance addiction. Wow, I'm wondering how many of our listeners are going to sit there and feel like they're, they've just been called out, including myself, by the way. Uh, the performance piece, I am very much focused on achievement and crossing things off the list and what all do I want to do in this life. I, I can really relate to that and very much appreciate how you explained 
how those those two ideas, performance addiction and image love, go together. I've never heard of this idea of image love before, but I get what you're saying, and it makes complete mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the story, that really helped bring it home as well. Well, you know, when we, we, we fall in love with celebrities, we fall in love with the same TV faces we see every day, and we assume that we know people. And then we think we have to act like them or, or project an image like them to be loved, especially if you have old childhood hurts that have never been resolved. And, you know, I'm sure you know this from interviewing many people who have written books and have a lot of stature, and you have a doctorate and are very successful as well. But, you know, if they don't know what we look like behind the scenes, you know, <laughs> and, I, you know, the first time I was on a national TV show, I couldn't believe how many people were so anxious behind the scenes. And I was interviewed by a woman. I won't identify who she was, but it was a national show. And she said, and I said to her, boy, you're really anxious today. And she said, yes, I am. And I said, and interesting, it was when I published the book Performance Addiction. And, she, and I said, how come you're so anxious? She said, you know, I, I do this show in front of six million people every day. But today my mother's watching. And I said, <laughs> what does that mean? Because my mother, when I get off this show, she's going to say, did, did you have to wear that skirt? Did you, put, you know, you, you, you should have had your hair done. and blah. She'll criticize what I look like. She'll criticize what I said. She'll say I asked you the wrong questions. She goes, I do this in front of six million people. And my mother isn't in town. I don't worry about anything. But when I know she's watching, I just don't feel comfortable. Mm, I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. Well, she was identifying the scene of the crime. I mean, here's a person that's on national TV every day who is well-educated, well-spoken, attractive. Um, and, and from what I understand, she has a very good marriage, you know, the mother of three. And, and yet, when she thought of her critical mother watching, everything changed. She had to be perfect. And I think performance addictions, addicts, you know, they think they can perfect their way into happiness to overcome some of the, the hurts that we had earlier in life. And it's just such a losing proposition. And it's so energy draining. Mm. Well, speaking of that, you mentioned something about the need to overcome or people maybe not overcoming the hurts of the past. Do we need to talk about the past to be able to reduce our stress or anxiety levels? Is that a requirement? Well, you know, I, I'm not big, Elise, on, on belaboring the past. But the only time I believe it's necessary to focus on the past is if it's interfering with the present. Otherwise, okay. it's not necessary to explore. But we need to understand the origin of our old conditioning and how our past can create distorted views of ourselves and others so we can be- begin the process of perceiving others and ourselves more accurately. I mean, we, we, if you're unaware of your own biases from the past, your ability to perceive accurately is always going to be compromised. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, if you have a fear of anger because your father had a short temper, you may be overly sensitive to people you encounter who are passionate, but they're not angry. But every time they elevate their voice, you think they're angry, so you kind of withdraw because you haven't worked that out. So, yes, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of going into the past just unnecessarily, but if it's bothering and interfering with you being happy and balanced in the present, then it is necessary to go back to those places. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that makes complete sense to me. Very well said as well. Something else you said earlier, too, that I want to probe into, uh, this idea of satisfaction in, in today's society. So what do you think is missing in our society that so many successful people are leading such unsatisfied lives? I'm absolutely convinced that what's missing is the ability to sustain intimacy. I think uh. people are so misdirected because what we're, we look, every human being, 
I don't care who you are, whether you admit it or not, every human being wants to be loved and wants to be respected. And there's no better feeling in life than having a partner uh, who you deeply love and are in a relationship with that you know you can count on, that you know that you can count on this person for the truth, for accurate feedback, for support, and you can go out in the world feeling a bit more resilient to handle the stresses of the world. And what I see, particularly in people in the business world in their 50s and 60s, you know, who have had much success, they've had, they have more money than they need, but when they realize, when they finally are approaching retirement, and they realize that, you know, they don't really have anybody they feel comfortable with. They don't even feel comfortable in their own in skin. I have a client who has more money than God, and he sold his company for multi-millions. He retired in Florida on, on the ocean in Naples, and he came back after one year, and now he works for the company that he sold it to, to the person he sold it to. Because, you know, he, he said, you know, I, you walk around in Florida and you can't keep telling people how important you used to be. They get tired of hearing it. <laughs> and it's because I said, you, you don't feel like you have anything to offer but what you used to do, what your resume says, as if you have nothing to offer as a human being, as a person. You know, like who, who he is is not important as his title. And we have to get to a point where we realize that if you don't know how to maintain intimacy in life, you don't know how to maintain solid long-term relationships, friendships, you're going to feel that you failed. I don't care if you're the CEO of the most prestigious company in the world. If you fail at love, you're going to fail at life. And that's what mm. a lot of executives end up experiencing. Wow. That was incredibly powerful. And I, uh, there are so many things in there that are so quotable that I'm so, I'm so grateful this is a radio show. That means it's going to be recorded. It's going to live live on podcast forever, however, however long it, it, it's available. Uh, wonderful way of being able to address such important issues, Dr. Sierra McCauley. It's just wonderful to hear you talk. Um, you. In our In our short little amount of time together here, I'd like to give my guests, if you will, the last word. And we've got maybe one minute, if you would like, just to say, what else would you like to leave our listeners with today? Well, I'd like to leave your listeners with the idea that, remember, the trusting foundation that empathy creates changes our brain chemistry. It calms our soul, and it puts us in a position to listen. And then we can open up and take in what we need to hear in order to rewrite our story and correct distorted thinking. And only then, only then can we become who we're destined to be. Mm. Wow. What a powerful way to, to finish the show. And I didn't even ask you to prepare that. I, I just wanted to make sure and give you a chance to be able to say what was on your mind. Um, I think that I, I, your your voice alone is incredibly calming to me. I'm sure you hear that over and over again. But just the way that you speak and, and the way you choose your words has I'm in a different state already. Thank you for the, the therapy session. <laughs> well, we changed our brain chemistry, Elise. <laughs> did we? I, yeah. I, I, I believe that we did. And I hope that our listeners were able to to discern that for themselves, too. I, I, I honestly believe that my blood pressure is a little bit lower listening to you. My heartbeat is a little bit slower. It's, it's wonderful. So it's a nice way to send me into the weekend. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Sierra McCauley. It's wonderful to, to get to know you better and to hear and your wisdom and your perspective. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Elise. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity, and it was it was fun interacting with you. You asked great questions. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, for, for our listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley or his work or any of his published works, visit the website balanceyoursuccess.com. See you next week, and remember that work is at least one-third of our life, so let's work on purpose. 
We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.